Good morning. <clears throat> Boy, that was close. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping I, I wouldn't have my first experience of having the church wait for me. Um, <laughs> but I, I got here right in time. You all should have seen me running through that parking lot. Uh, you would have thought I was a track star. Good morning again. Um, apologies for my uh, tardiness. I was cleaning up my sermon this morning and I lost track of time. And, uh, but good to be here. Um, I hope that you are indeed having a good morning. And if you're not, well, you've come to the right place uh, because you've come to worship a good God. You've come to worship a God who turns tears into joy. God who remembers the lowly, a God who remembers the marginalized, a God who remembers those whose hearts are filled with pain. Welcome this morning. We will continue through the book of 1 John. You've had the pleasure of hearing Ronnie preach on this twice and myself once. This morning we will look at 1 John chapter 3. Not sure about you, but sometimes when I read this small letter of 1 John, I feel a little bit uncomfortable. I feel uncomfortable because I think I tend to read it as an accusatory letter. A letter that's pointing out all the ways I'm a terrible Christian and encouraging me to check if I, if I truly belong to the household of faith. I remember in college, during college, having conversations with friends about the possibility or the reality of Christians attaining the state of sinless perfection, meaning can a Christian eventually, in this, in this flesh, in this body on earth, be perfectly without sin? <clears throat> maybe you share in my experience, or maybe you've had some of those conversations in the past. In those days in college and now, I knew that I wasn't perfect. And so when I read what John wrote in 1 John, that those who are Christians do not sin, I wondered what hope is there for a person like me. Maybe you're sitting here this morning with those same thoughts as you think about 1 John or as you read it in the past. You had those thoughts You've said, my sins are many. Or maybe you've said, my sins have been around for so long. Could I really belong? As many of you know, I was born in Nigeria. I transitioned to the U.S. <clears throat> well, actually, before I transitioned, my dad transitioned to the U.S. when I was about five years old. <clears throat> so... My siblings and I, my brothers and I, spent the next five to six years without the constant presence of our father in our lives. At the age of 11, my brothers and I transitioned to the U.S., leaving my mom behind for her to wait her turn to transition herself. I've sometimes wondered throughout the years, why did they make that decision. One of the significant answers 
to that question, I think, is love. And you love, you endure certain things. You sacrifice certain things. When you love, you go to certain distance for those whom you love. It was love for his family that caused my dad to travel across the oceans to create a better life and a stable life for his family. It was love that caused my mom to endure the temporary separation from her family so that they can enjoy or could experience, or so she and her family could experience a better life. Love makes us do crazy things, doesn't it? Love brings out things from us that we didn't think we're capable of doing, things we thought we would never do. Love makes us do them. And that's what 1 John is all about. 1 John is not meant to be accusatory. 1 John is not meant to make you feel guilty about yourself. Uh, but it, is written, it was written to be a display of the extent to which God's love has taken him. Ben Witherington, who was a biblical scholar, observed that it is an odd but important fact that there is more discussion of love in this little sermon of 1 John than there is in any other New Testament book. Who would have thought? As we seek to learn from 1 John chapter 3 today, there are three observations I'd like to point out to us this morning. The first is love sets us apart. Love sets us apart. The second is love makes us holy. Love makes us holy. And the third is love makes us care. Love makes us care. For our first observation, let's look at 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, 2, and 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who does hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John wrote in these three verses, as he had in the previous chapters, with a desire to assure and give confidence to his audience that they indeed belong to God. John brought attention to the privilege that they had in being called children of God. This is not a privilege to be ashamed of. It is not a privilege to be taken for granted. It is not a privilege that arose from noble behaviors. This is a privilege that sprung out of love. 
Uh, being tagged as a child of God is an act of great love, John says. It is an act of incomprehensible love. It is an act of magnificent love. A love which human words is incapable, could not adequately, fully describe. This is who we are, brothers and sisters, children of God via the love of God. We belong to God because God poured out his love upon us through his beloved son, Jesus Christ. His love took him to the extent of sending his only son to lay down his life for us so that we can be called children of God. Now, this is a fact that should not be taken for granted. Uh, this is a fact that should not be forgotten. This is a fact that should be held closely to the heart like a treasure. Should always be treasured. It was love that made it possible for you and me to be sitting here this morning from various different backgrounds, worshiping God and spending time with each other. What does it mean to be a child of God? It is to believe in Jesus Christ and what he accomplished on the cross. Love made that possible. What does it mean to be a child of God? It is to be forgiven of all our sins. Love made that possible. What does it mean to be a child of God? It is to be reconciled to God. Love made that possible. What does it mean to be a child of God? It is to be filled with hope for a life without pain and evil. Love made that possible. Brothers and sisters, we are children of God because of the great love of God. Let that be the foundation with which you you face each and every difficulty that you experience. That same love that made you his own will never leave you nor forsake you. That same love is present with you in your adversities and in your moments of pain. When you've been through something, when you've been through life and you've seen the other end of it, you know what that love feels like. I remember it was God's love that helped me through the pain of my mother's death. It was God's love that helped Modesta and I through the adversities or the resistance we, excuse me, through the pain of the family resistance we faced when we were trying to get married. <clears throat> and I believe it is God's love that will help us through the pain of infertility. It's God's love that sets us apart from those who continue to live a life of rejection. A life in which they do not acknowledge God as their father and creator. God's love sets us apart. This love not only sets us apart in our identity, 
but it sets us apart in our hope. This is not all there is to us. We are God's children now with all manners of imperfections. But when Christ, who is our hope, when Christ, who is our hope, appears, we shall be transformed into a more glorious form. We shall see him face to face and know him face to face. We shall see him, we shall meet him in his, in his physical form and be like him in his glorious state. Brothers and sisters, let this word of encouragement, let this be a word of encouragement for you this morning as you wrestle through the various turbulence of life, whether it be the turbulence of sin, the turbulence of unfulfilled desires, the turbulence of debilitating sickness, the turbulence of broken relationships, the turbulence of mental illness of various sorts, the turbulence of a feeling of no purpose. You, who are sitting here this morning, who have called upon the name of Jesus, you are endowed with the privilege of being a child of God because of the magnificent love of God for you. And that love will one day bring about a lasting transformation of your entire being when Christ appears again. Love sets us apart. Let's look at our second observation in verse 4 through verse 10. Love makes us holy. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Love makes us holy. Many ink have been spilled to explain the meaning of these seven verses. I believe there's at least eight different uh, interpretations of a school of thought on what John could be saying in these seven verses. As mentioned earlier, uh, these verses have the potential to send you into a depressive state of doubting your faith. Let me assure you this morning, you won't be depressed. You will be encouraged this morning. Now that's because this was John's 
gold. Now, John did not write 1 John to discourage or send his audience into a depressive and doubting state. After encouraging his readers about their status as God's children, he continued along those same lines in this section by making a distinction between those who are God's children and those who are children of the devil. He said that those who are God's children are, 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 are distinct by the lifestyle, and those who are not are also distinct by the way they live their life. But before we get into the heart of the distinction, let's observe what John wrote about what Christ accomplished on the cross. In verse 5, John wrote that Christ appeared to take away sins. And in the second half of verse 8, John wrote that Christ appeared to destroy the work or the works of the devil. The death of Christ took away the sins of all who would believe in him. Uh, not merely the sins that they committed before calling upon his name, but also the sins that they commit after they confessed him. Christ freed all those who call upon his name from the domain of darkness by destroying the hold that the enemy has on their life. The love of God made this possible and thereby freed us to live a life of holiness. This significant point, combined with what John wrote in verse 2 about a future glorification, lets us know that we are not yet all that we are to be. John knows that, and he wants his readers to know that as well. This is a word of encouragement for Christians. If you're a Christian this morning, this is a word of encouragement for you. Because Christ appeared to take away sins and destroy the works of the devil, we are able to do what is right. And what is right involves what John wrote in chapter 1 of verse 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And also what he wrote in verse 1 of chapter 2, that my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Confession and acknowledgement of sin is a significant distinctive attribute from the Christian and the non-Christian. Remember, John had in mind throughout this letter the separatist group that I mentioned in chapter 2 that took the work of Christ to the wrongful conclusion. Remember, they believed that since Christ has taken away all their sins, since Christ has died to take away all sins, we have no sins anymore. And when you believe that you have no sins anymore, you can't sin anymore, you no longer recognize sin as such, and you begin to behave in ways that are not Christ-like. The life of a child of God is defined by righteousness and not sinfulness. Now John wrote in the first half of verse of chapter 
chapter 3, verse 6, that no one who abides in Christ keeps on sinning. And in verse 7, that whoever practices righteousness is righteous. And in verse 9, that no one born of God makes a practice of sinning. The ongoing, habitual, non-confessional nature is the heart of John's instruction. The confession, the ongoing, habitual, non-confessional nature of sin is the heart of John's instruction. The Christian ought to live a life of ongoing, habitual life of righteousness. And this righteousness includes confessions. To confess is to be righteous. To be righteous is to confess. The New Testament and Old Testament is is filled with men that are called righteous. Why? It wasn't because they were perfect, but it was because they recognized and acknowledged their imperfections and it's on display. This is how the love of God makes us holy. It it provides for us the ability to live rightly and to confess when we don't. That's true holiness. Well, what about those who are not children of God? Well, John wrote that they live a life that is defined by sinfulness. He wrote in the second half of verse 6, no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. And in verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And in verse 10, he wrote that whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Notice they use the devil for comparison to those who make a practice of sinning. Do not miss that. What do we know of the devil? Uh, What do we know of Satan? Well, that's what we know. We know he has been sinning from the beginning. We know that he has never stopped sinning. We know that he does not believe that he is wrong. We know that he does not believe that he needs to confess. We know that he is actively recruiting others to join him. We know that he seeks to punish those who reject his encouragement to join him. This, my friends, is the life of the one who makes a practice of sinning. If this describes you this morning, then be rest assured that you do not belong to God. You are not a child of God. The distinction between the children of God and the children of the devil is not merely that one sins and the other doesn't, but it's that one's life is defined by righteousness and the other is defined by sinfulness. One's life is defined by constant confession and the other is defined by constant negligence and disregard. That's why 
This is the reason John wrote in verse 4 of chapter 3 that everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is indeed lawlessness. You see, lawlessness is a disregard for the law. It is a discount of the law. It is a neglect of the law. It is, a, it is to live as though the law is non-existent. One law in particular, the law of Christ, uh, the law of righteousness, uh, the law of God, whether that law be written on stones of tablets or written on the heart. The child of God, or the children of God, through confession, acknowledges the law. Uh, through confession, counts the law as significant. Uh, through confession, embraces the law. Because confession is acknowledging that I have transgressed a law that's important, that matters, that's significant. But when you, what do you do when you don't feel like a child of God? What do you do when you don't feel like you're counted among the household of faith because you're still engaged in the same sin over and over again? I feel you. I feel the burden that you feel. It is an emotional dilemma. I desire so much that I will stop being so easily frustrated with Modesto. But moment after moment, I fall short. Well, friends, the truth that I remind myself and the truth that I tell you this morning is the same that John has written for us. It is the love of God that made us his children, not our noble behaviors. It is God's love that makes us holy, which include both righteous behaviors, right behaviors, and confession of wrong behaviors. Whether the sin that troubles your soul is much less significant than uh, the one I've mentioned this morning, or whether it is much more significant, know that there is no limitation to the number of confessions that God desires. Love makes us holy. Brings us to our final observation this morning. Love makes us care. Read with me in verse 11 through 24. <clears throat> For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his, his brother. And why did it murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the word hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we 
ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our hearts condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. John ended verse 10 by saying that the one who does not love his brother is also a child of Satan. We've already observed that the separatists in chapter 2 did not love their fellow brothers in, in the process or in their desire to convince them, in their desire to win them over. Hence, here, John makes it clear again that those who hate actually do not belong to God. The message for Christians to love each other is as, whole, is as old as the gospel message. And Christians, uh, Christians' failure to love properly and consistently is just as old as the instruction to love. Those who are the children of God love their brothers and sisters. And they love them by caring for them because that's what love is. To love is to care. Notice again the comparison that John used here to describe what a lack of love looks like. He mentioned Cain and Abel. He mentioned Cain's hatred of his brother Abel. Cain absorbed himself of the responsibility to care for his brother and to be concerned with his welfare when God asked him, where is your brother? To which Cain responded by saying, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? What's that got to do with me? What's he got to do with me? Am I supposed to be aware of his whereabouts? Not only that, not only did he absolve himself of the responsibility, but he refused to acknowledge, he refused to confess, he refused to repent of the hatred he displayed in killing his brother by lying about the knowledge of his whereabouts. These brothers and sisters is the defining mark of those who do not belong to God. John wrote in chapter 13 that do not be surprised if the word hates you. It ought to be expected for those who do not belong to God. But not so for those who belong to God. Those who do not love, they are still in darkness. But for those who do, they love in words, 
and the love in action. We should always be ready to consider the needs of others and seek ways to meet those needs. Does this mean we ought to meet every need at all times? And at all times, rather? That's impossible. But when we are able to, the love of God compels us to care. When we are able to, the love of God compels us to go beyond the distance. It compels us to move outside our comfort zone to bear the burdens of our brothers and sisters. If we see a brother or sister suffering, but we do nothing about it, John says our spirit-filled hearts ought to condemn us. Our spirit-filled hearts reminds us that we are not loving as we ought to. And when that happens, we, we confess. We make strides to love as we've been loved when another opportunity arrives. You see, the distinction between those who belong to God and those who do not is confession and acknowledgement when love was not properly displayed. This is true when we think of those who claim to be Christians but are racist in their hearts and in their actions toward other Christians without repentance and confession. This is true about those who claim to be Christians but despise their fellow Christians who belong to a different ethnic tribe without confession or repentance. This was also true of the Pharisees and the leaders of Israel who claimed to know God but deprived the weak among them of the love of God. You see, it's easy to think less of the heart. We can think of the heart as being deceitful. Uh, think of the heart as depraved and of no good. But I think if that's how we think of the heart, that would be wrong. John says there is something about a spirit-filled heart. John says a, a spirit-filled heart, uh, a heart with the seed of God, a heart with the word of God, a heart with the Christ living in it, or to accuse us of wrongdoing, or to expose hypocritical behavior, or to point out when something is wrong. The love of God makes us care for each other, brothers and sisters, not hate each other. And we should be sensitive to each other's needs while finding ways to meet them. This is what love that we've received from God compels us to do. The need could be physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. And it's not enough to know Bible verses and to read every books. We need to step out and meet the actual real needs of those that we call our fellow brothers and sisters. The love of God, brothers and sisters, it sets us apart from those who aren't. The love of God compels us to be holy, to live a life filled with righteous living and confession. The love of God compels us to care for the need that we see in our community. 
And it's our prayer. It is my prayer that as we treasure this love that the Father has given to us, we too would stretch out our hands and display that same love to those around us. Let us pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the, for the great love, the magnificent love that you've given to us. It is because of your love that we are here this morning, worshiping together, having different backgrounds, different life experiences, different point of views, different political affiliations, different careers, different goals in life. It is your love that has brought us all together. We pray that as we have experienced this love, we would live and conduct ourselves as those who indeed have experienced this great love. Help us to pursue a life of righteousness. Help us to care and not hate those whom we call brother, whom we call sister. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.